God isn't hindered by how many people are fighting for him. He can rescue by a large amount or by a small amount. And honestly, the cross, God saved by one. So we've been in 1 Samuel for a while. We slowed down because it can get confusing with all of the different characters in the books of Samuel and Kings, between the kings, the, the prophets, all the stuff that's going on. So we slowed down, and up to this point, we focused on sort of a character arc each time. We witnessed the fall of Eli and the call of Samuel to ministry. And then we witnessed... The people see Samuel get old, turn on him, and ask for a king. And so we saw Saul's rise uh, to power and how it started off pretty well and humbly. Now we're going to see tonight the fall of Saul and his failure uh, and the rise of the next king in David. So that's our focus tonight. And so we'll see Saul started out pretty good, but that was only a chapter ago, and already we're looking at some pretty severe failure on Saul's part. Now, I do want to remind you, after God pointed out to all of these people, like we talked about last week, he pointed out to the Israelites through Samuel, you got what you wanted. I, I gave you what you asked for. You asked for a king. I gave you the type of king you want. Big, tall, handsome Saul. Um, but here's the deal. If you and your king will follow me. I'll continue to bless you. But as soon as you don't, be on the lookout. And so here's what we're going to see tonight. Chapter 13, verse 1, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years, over Israel. So that uh, sentence is confusing because it should be. Some of the Hebrew is missing, and so we don't have a full translation of this. Um, so sometimes the Bibles try to make it make more sense. We don't really know what it says Sometimes it says Saul was one, years old, one year old when he started to reign. That doesn't make sense. He wasn't one year old. We don't know how old Saul was when he began to reign. Some assume that it was around 31 years old, and then two years into his reign, X happened. We don't really know what verse 1 really states, but it's not really that detrimental to this part of the story. But I just want you to know why that sentence is confusing in your Bible. There's incomplete original language for us to translate from. In fact, in the Greek version, the Septuagint, they just ignored that first verse. They just they didn't even worry about it. So uh, verse 2. This is where it'll start to make sense. Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. Verse 3. And Jonathan attacked the garrison. You may want to underline Jonathan attacked if you have a pen with you or have a way to highlight that or make note. Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. In verse 4, we get a, a glimpse of what that means. Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines and that Israel also became an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. So we start to see 
Saul's pride inch into his heart. Who was it that attacked the garrison? Jonathan. Who blew the trumpet to signal victory and let everybody know that it was his victory? Saul. Saul couldn't even let his own son have a victory because he just can't imagine anybody else getting recognition for anything at this point in his career. And he is taking all of the, all of the glory for himself, even away from his son, Jonathan. And it says, Saul attacked the garrison of the Philistines, which isn't true. So then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger for the people were distressed. Then the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and and, uh, Gilead. So what's happening here? Jonathan scored a victory for Israel, um, for the Israelites against the Philistines. And instead of that making the Israelites feel bold, because God had worked on Jonathan's behalf, Saul's son, the Philistines gather a large swarm of an army to come at Israel, and the people get scared. They hide in rocks and caves. They cross over the Jordan. They run away. The people are afraid instead of being emboldened by the fact that Jonathan has done something amazing when Saul was not willing to move, though he took credit. So as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. That's important. He waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So this is how it it reads unlike what actually happened. Saul is supposed to wait for Samuel for seven days, and when Samuel gets there, he'll get his instruction. So, but to Saul, he's saying, Samuel isn't here yet, so I need to do something. So verse 9, Saul said, bring a burnt offering and a peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. In, in verse 10, we find out why he was wrong. Now it happened, as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. So it wasn't that Samuel was late. Because as soon as Saul finished the offering, Samuel showed up. It's that Saul was impatient in waiting for God to come through. He wasn't willing to wait for the prophet. We know that it was at the end of the seven days, because that's when Saul said, he, oh, I, I, I can't wait any longer. Samuel's supposed to be here. Um, and as soon as he finishes the offering, Samuel shows up. If he had just waited just a little bit longer on God, he would have gotten the right answer. But his impatience and his pride took over. So as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? That's a great question. Whenever we find ourselves being impatient and wondering why God isn't coming through and we try to take matters into our own hands, what have you done? And Saul said, which is, This is the excuse factory coming from Saul. He's really good at spitting these out. Saul said, when I saw these people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed. Well, that's a lie. We know that he did come right when he said he would be there. 
and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. Then I said, the Philistines will now come on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. So Samuel is saying, what are you doing? You know you're supposed to wait for me. I'm here. I'm right on time. Exactly when I said I would be here. And Saul said, well, the people, they were scattering for me, and people were running away scared. And the Philistines were... Are, they're going to be coming. Look at that huge army that's coming. So I needed to make sure I was right with God. So I took matters into my own hands. And then he comes up with a religious reason. He tries to make his poor action a religious duty. That's silly. But that's not uncommon in Christian circles to do that. It's not uncommon for us to try to give a righteous reason for our bad behavior. So Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. And maybe foolishly doesn't sound harsh enough to us in our vernacular, because we think of foolish as just sort of silly. But he's really saying, you've done something that has put your heart in opposition to God. You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded for you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. That's exactly what God promised. I would, I would keep blessing you and remain with you if you serve me. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord had commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. I think we can look at this last bit and maybe misunderstand it. Because what we hear Samuel saying to Saul is, you have sinned, therefore God is taking the kingdom away from you. But that's not the whole story. As we go through 2 Samuel and we read about the next King David, we find out he, his life isn't full of righteousness. He's not good at everything. But David is someone who will repent when he's faced with his fault and seek God afterwards. Saul's heart has turned away from God, and he refuses to repent. Saul's heart is filled with pride, and he wants all of the glory and credit for himself. David is not like that. It's not so much the sin, because let's face it, that's something we all deal with, but it's our heart about sin. Are we so proud of ourselves, or are we willing to be humbled and repent before God to know that we need him to make up the gap? And so, because of Saul's heart, the kingdom will be removed from him. So Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. And then we get a look again at Saul's son. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then raiders came out of the camp and Philistines in three companies. One company turned on the road to Afra, the land to Shual. Another company turned to the road to Beth Horon. And another company turned to the road to the border overlooks the Valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. So because of the inaction of the armies, the Philistines that are waiting to fight basically break off in small garrisons and go attack cities when they want to raid stuff for food. That's all that that's saying. They're taking supplies and raiding them from and plundering the surrounding towns for supplies whenever they see fit because they're not afraid. 
Verse 19, now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all of the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. So whatever had happened, the Philistines are this army that's winning. They're holding some weight against Israel, and so much so that they're not allowing blacksmith shops to exist so that the Israelites cannot create weapons of war to fight against them. That's a pretty good military tactic. That's what's happening. But all of the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshares, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. So they would have to go down to the Philistines just to sharpen their farm equipment. And the charge for sharpening was a pin for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and the set points of the goads. So that's just telling us that there was a specific heavy amount a pim is a weighted amount. They would have to pay in order to get the stuff done. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to path, into the pass of Bichmash. So the only people who had sons or who had swords uh, were Saul and his son. So only Saul and Jonathan had instruments of war. Verse, or chapter 14. Now, it happened one day, Jonathan, and I would even highlight that, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. So Jonathan is acting impulsively. He's saying to his armor bearer, let's go check out this Philistine garrison. While Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migran, the people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know Jonathan had gone. So Saul is sitting there waiting for a battle to start, not wanting to instigate, hanging out under a pomegranate tree, and Jonathan is taking action. So you see a very stark contrast between Saul and his son. Between the passes uh, which, by which Jonathan sought to go over the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozaz and the name of the other was Sine. The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash and the other southward opposite Gibeah. So basically, he's marching between two sharp rocks and a big crevice over a hill. And he's sort of hidden by that. Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. May, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Listen to Jonathan's words. Everyone else is scared. People have run away. Saul's biding his time, sitting under a pomegranate tree. Yet Jonathan and his armor bearer, who just carries the, his sword, go on this mission against the Philistine camp. And Jonathan says, let us go to the garrison of these uncircumcised. What he's saying is, let us go to these people of the flesh. Because a circ circumcision was cutting away of the flesh. So he's saying, we are God's people. These people are of the flesh. They're against God. And they're coming at Israel, God's people. Why are we letting this happen? Let's go and see what God will do for us. Because God isn't hindered by how many people are fighting for him. He can rescue by a large amount or by a small amount. And the, honestly, the cross, God saved by one. 
himself. So his armor bearer said to him, and this is really interesting, this might give us some insight into the leadership that Jonathan had because of his relationship with God. The person who worked for Jonathan says this, his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, go then, here I am with you according to your heart. He says, yeah, let's do it. Let's go to battle. And Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say this to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say this, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has delivered them into our hand and this will be a sign to us. So he's saying, I'm going to take action and uh, this, will be, this is how I'm going to work for God. I'm going to say, wait for them to say, see what the, the Philistines say. If they say, wait for us, then we're going to stay there and wait. But if they say, come to us, then we know God has delivered them into our hand. So Jonathan is even willing to accept defeat. He's just willing to accept whatever God wants. That's, that's the right way to move forward in the battle of life. If you're willing to do whatever it takes to expand, expand God's, God's kingdom, even if it means your failure, then you're willing to do whatever God wants you to do. And I think that's an impressive way to look at this. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you something. So now Jonathan's like, yeah, they, God is delivering them into our hands. That's exactly what I prayed for. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it was a very great trembling. Now the watchmen of Saul of Gibeah and Benjamin looked, and there was a multitude melting away, and they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp to the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled and they went to the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor. And there was very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp, from the surrounding country, they also joined Israel who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all of the men who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they had heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. So Jonathan goes in and God delivers these people into his hands. He kills about 20 people before any, any other noise starts happening. And then the earth starts to quake Noise is happening. Saul decides, oh, it sounds like something's going on. Let's charge. Let's see if I can take credit for something. And then God turns the hand of the Philistines against each other and all of the confusion and all of the ruckus and everything that's going on, God gets to work. 
But what happens first? Jonathan takes action. Sometimes we have to be in the fight for God to work. Now, we need to wait for God's word, right? That was Saul's first problem. He didn't wait. But then Saul refused to get in the battle, and only Jonathan was the one listening and who was willing to even accept defeat if it wasn't God's will. That is the type of heart God is looking for, someone who's seeking after him and understands his will. So now the, the men of Israel were distressed that day that Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. So now Saul, in his arrogance and craziness, has told everyone, We are chasing them down as they retreat, and uh, nobody can eat until I get my vengeance, until I get my credit. What a nutcase. So none of the people tasted food. Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping, but no one had put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath, the one that Saul made them give. But Jonathan hadn't heard his father's charge for the people with the oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of the rod with his, uh, that was in his hand and dipped it into a honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. Well, shocker. He ate when he was in the midst of a battle, expending a lot of calories, and he got some in him, and it helped, of course. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. But Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? If Saul hadn't been only after his own glory, wouldn't they have been able to do much better? Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon. So the people were very faint. And the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, calves, and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. So because they were famished from all of the work they had done and Saul didn't allow them to eat until this point, when they got, finally were able to eat, they didn't take the time to do things properly. They slaughtered the animals but ate with the blood, which was against the, the Levitical law. They're not supposed to eat the blood. The life is in the blood and the blood is set aside for the sacrifices. So they're causing themselves to be unclean because of Saul's bad decree. So then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating the blood. So he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. So what does Saul do when he finds out? He puts the blame on them. It's not my fault. Everyone should just do what I say all the time. I'm always right. So he says, You've done, you've done treacherously. It has nothing to do with the decree that I gave. Roll a large stro a stone to me this day. Then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox to him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. What? For someone who's supposed to be serving God... That's quite a statement. Now Saul said, let us go down to the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. And let us not leave a man of them. 
And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, let us draw near to God there. So Saul asked counsel of God. Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? So Saul, after all of this, is now finally asking God, what should I do? Now, he's caused, he's caused the nation to sin. He's not waited for Samuel. He's waited when he should have been enacting. Now he's asking God, what should I do? But he did not answer him that day. God did not answer Saul. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. So after everything Saul had done, after God doesn't answer him, he still is putting the blame outside of himself. Who sinned that God will not answer me? Is, this, is, you know, this is the attitude that I think people outside the church dislike about people within the church. Is <laughs> sometimes we have this haughty attitude about following God um, in sort of a hypocritical sense of pointing the finger at the world instead of recognizing our, own, recognizing our own sin, right? And I think, amazingly, when Jesus taught us to pray, when he taught his disciples how to pray, he said, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Interestingly, Jesus tells us to point the finger at ourselves before we look out to the world, right? We have to be humbled before God before we look out at anyone else. We need to recognize our own, for, our own need for God's forgiveness even before we forgive others because it puts us in a situation where we are not on a pedestal. We are humbled before God first so that we recognize if we need forgiveness, it's easier to forgive others because we can't stand from a place of judgment pointing at others. And that's the right attitude. But Saul does not have this here. Saul has an attitude of who could have possibly sinned wasn't, clearly wasn't me, I'm the king. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel? Though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among all the people answered. He said to all Israel, you be on one side and my son and Jonathan and I will be on the other side. So he's splitting Israel, all of the people, all of the army between him, uh, all of them, and then Saul and Jonathan on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore, Saul said to the Lord, God of Israel, give a perfect lot. So they're casting lots. They're just using a game of chance to figure out what's going on. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between my son, Jonathan, and me. So Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. Oh, so Jonathan got the short stick. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand, so now I must die. I ate. I didn't know you gave a decree not to eat. And because of that, I'm going to die. And Saul answered, God, do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. So Saul is telling God should kill you. His own son. This is the how lost Saul is. You shall surely die. Verse 45, really important. But the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan and he did not die. 
Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So he allowed the Philistines to retreat. And interestingly, the people noticed what Jonathan did. Because throughout this story, you have Saul pointing the finger at everybody but himself. And finally coming to the point where he's even willing to kill his own son to save the credit that he wants for himself and the glory that he wants for himself. And the people said, why would we kill Jonathan? God worked through Jonathan this day. He's not the one who sinned. And they protect him. And Jonathan doesn't die. So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought all his enemies on every side against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Then the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jeshui, Melchishua, and the names of his two daughters were these, the names of the firstborn, Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam and the daughter of Ahimaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul and Ner the father of Abner, whose son was Abiel. Now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. So Saul has risen to full power on his throne. He's created an actual army to be perpetual throughout the land instead of working as a militia whenever there's an incursion. Uh, and he makes sure that he takes from him, for himself anyone that comes up as a strong, mighty man. That's where we're at. But Saul's failure is not over. We have another chapter of it. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek, for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Saul's given one more chance. Now, God has already said, I'm going to bring up a new king. You're done. But he's given, he's given one more shot. Will you listen to what God says? It is your job to take out the Amalekites. This story takes us back to the Exodus. If you remember the story when Joshua led the Israelites as a general in the war against the Amalekites in the desert because the Amalekites attacked the, the, uh, the Israelites from their weak, weakest position. And Moses went up on top of a mountain, and whenever his arms were raised, they were winning. Whenever his arms fell, the Amalekites were winning. And so Aaron and his brother or son lifted up his arms uh, and held Moses' arms up so that they would win. God vowed to deal with the Amalekites because of what they did to them in Egypt. So this is God's judgment falling on these people. Remember, God made a promise to Abraham. He said, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. The Amalekites cursed the Israelites. They tried to attack them from the weakest point. They attacked the women and the children from the back. And then God had to save them from this attack. So this is God's judgment falling on them, and he's giving Saul his final opportunity to prove himself. Will you listen to what I say? Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. I would, not, I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you that that verse bothers me. There's, there, it, there's something in me that just doesn't like reading that at all. 
This is one of those moments where I have to put away my flesh and I don't get to tell God what's right and wrong. God has made a promise to Abraham and he is keeping that promise. He is cursing those who have cursed Israel. If God is good, then what he chooses to do is good. And I don't get the right to tell him what is and isn't right. And this is a hard moment for me, but this is Saul's chance. And as we read, we'll find out why. Why it was so important that Saul do this. Because unfortunately, the story of the Amalekites should end in this chapter. It doesn't. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them into lame, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, get down from the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Who are the Kenites? The Kenites are descendants of Jethro, descendants of Moses' father-in-law. So right after you get through this disturbing thing, God is removing the righteous from the judgment, which is this pattern of God. He did that with Enoch before the flood. He did that with Lot before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's doing it with the Kenites before the destruction of the Amalekites. So the righteous are getting removed before the judgment. Now Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. This sounds good so far. He took King Agag and destroyed all the people. So it sounds like he did what God asked him. And then verse 9, but. That is a big but. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless they utterly destroyed. So Saul was willing to do what God had asked him, except for the good stuff. I want to keep the good stuff. This reminds me of Jesus with the rich young ruler. When he came to him and said, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And they have a conversation about the law. And then Jesus finally says to him, give your money to the poor. And the rich young ruler walks away sad because Jesus got to the heart of it. What is the thing that you put over your love for God? Is there something you love more than God? That's the problem. And so Saul sees all of this stuff, all the good um, crops, the good livestock. And then he even takes Agag, who he was supposed to kill uh, and destroy, and leaves him and his family alive. That's not good. That's not what God said. In fact, this is the reason that the story doesn't end here. Because when we get to the book of Esther, hundreds of years down the line, there's a man named Haman who is an Agagite. Why is he an Agagite? Because he's a descendant of Agag. Agag's family was not killed when they should have been. And Haman wants to kill all of the Jews. And Esther is the one who rises to the occasion in that book. We wouldn't have even needed that story if Saul had done what God had asked him to do. So why was the destruction of everyone important in this situation? Because God understood what was hanging in the balance 
if Saul didn't do what he was asked. And unfortunately, we had to see that play out in the book of Esther, and we'll get there eventually. And so they keep for themselves what's good, right? This is, like I said, the rich young ruler. This happens to us, I think, in general. It's hard to give away or to give to God our best. This also is like Cain and Abel, right? Abel brought the best that he had. You know, he brought the spotless, the firstborn to be a sacrifice to God. He brought the best to God of the spoil of his hands. Cain brought leftover crops and said, here you go. Here's a sacrifice. I think it's, I don't need it. So here, God, this is for you. You can have my leftovers. Is that really worship? If you'll give him what's left over rather than giving him your best. And so Saul fails to do that. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Now this is someone who has a heart for God. He's grieved by the fact that others won't follow him. Samuel is not even grieved by his own his own relationship with God. He's grieved for everyone who won't follow God. He sees Saul, this man who God loves, God put in a position, God gave him a chance, God gave him a second chance, and Saul's heart will not turn towards God. And what does Samuel do? He prays all night. Do we have that kind of heart for the people who need God? That's, what's, that's the heart that Samuel had. So when Samuel arose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel saying, Saul went up to Carmel and indeed he set up a monument for himself. And he has gone on around by and gone down to Gilgal. So Samuel's praying for him and he goes to see Saul. And what is Saul doing? Saul makes a monument for himself. Can you get more conceited? Have you just, why do you not understand Saul? It is God's kingdom. You are just a vessel. And Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So wait. Saul says to Samuel, Blessed are you. Look at me. Look at what I did for God. I did what God told me to do. And Samuel said, What is this? Bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Samuel is not fooled. He looks at him and he puts him, he asks him a question that puts him on his heels. You think you've done what God has asked? What's this? What's all this stuff that I see? Don't, am I not supposed to believe my eyes and ears? I know what's going on. And Saul said, they, what does Saul do? Deflects again. It wasn't me. It doesn't matter that I'm the king and I'm in charge. They did it. All the people All those soldiers, they brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to the sacrifice to the Lord your God. Uh, And the rest we have utterly destroyed. So Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. So Samuel tells Saul, shut up. And he said to him, Saul says, speak, speak on. Just, if you're ever in this position... And someone who you know loves God's word and is a prophet 
someone who calls people to correctness, you got what's coming to you if you ask them to speak to you. Saul asked for this. So Samuel said, when you were little, in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Samuel saying, remember when you start, remember when this started? Remember how humble you were? Remember how inadequate you felt to, be, to do what God has called you to do? Verse 18, now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Great question. It's a question we should all ask ourselves whenever we find ourselves in this position. Why did we not do what God said? Paul asks himself this question in Romans. He's, why don't I do the things I want to do? Why do I do the things I don't want to do? He asks himself, why don't I obey God? He wants to. Saul doesn't. And Samuel puts this question to him. Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Now, that's strong language, and I think it's appropriate. You did evil. Recognize it as evil. I'm not going to water it down for you. I'm not going to say, you made a mistake. You did evil. And Saul said to Samuel, but I obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. So in his explanation about how he did what God says to him, he explicitly says how he didn't. That's not smart. So I did what God said me to do. See, I brought Agag, king of Amalek, alive, who's supposed to be dead. Didn't I do a good job? I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people, again, not, not me, the, the people took the plunder of the sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed. But here comes the religious reason. To sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. We, we did it for a good cause. Well, I, I mean, I didn't do it. They did it. It wasn't me. But it was with a good heart. We want to we make sacrifices to God. So Samuel said, this is great. Samuel says, has the Lord... Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? This is an incredibly important sentence. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Not a difficult concept. Do what God says. That's better. That's better than needing all of this blood. And to heed then the fat of the rams. For rebellion is the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now he's given an excuse. We're not gonna get to chapter 16. We're gonna finish here tonight in chapter 15. Well, Saul said to Samuel, oh, you're right. I messed up. And this is his excuse for messing up. I feared the people and obeyed their voice. You're the king. This excuse is not working. They obey you. You don't obey them. You're the king. But I feared the people and I obeyed them. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I might worship the Lord. So this is what he's really saying. He's trying to look humble in front of Samuel. But what he's really saying is, 
Sam, will you come back with me so that we can sacrifice these animals in front of the people of Israel so that I'm seen with you and I get respect and honor? This is really, it's really his pride and arrogance coming out again. He's looking for a, a gesture to show in front of all of Israel to just increase his own monument again. He, maybe he wants to build himself another statue and he's just looking for everyone to like him. Silly Saul. Samuel said to Saul, I will not. I will not return with you. First of all, I like that he's just plain. Nope. Not going to do it. I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. This sums it up. You've rejected the word of God. You have turned your heart from God. It's not that you didn't, it's not that you've sinned, it's that you have completely turned away from God, your heart. It's a matter of the heart, Saul. And because you rejected God, you rejected his word, God's rejecting you. So Samuel turned around to go away. Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. This is interesting because at the hem of the robe, is where the symbol, there's a little knot at the, at the end of the robe. And similar to like the military garb you see on the chest, as the symbol of authority, what their rank was is, is in their whatever symbols on their chest. The symbol of authority back then was at the hem at the bottom of the robe. And that's what, Samuel, that's what Saul grabbed. Saul grabbed Samuel's robe where the authority symbol laid and it tore. And Samuel used that as a prophecy to say, the kingdom has been torn from you. Your authority has been torn from you. And it's going to be given to someone else. It's going to be given to a neighbor of yours who is better than you, which is really good to say to someone who has a lot of pride. <laughs> and also the strength of Israel, I will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should not relent. And he said, Saul, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So he does it again. Okay, you keep telling me how bad I am, but won't you come back with me and worship God with me so that I can look good in front of everybody else? Saul just does not get it. So Samuel turned back after Saul uh, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. So he thinks he's off scot-free. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Yeah, that's graphic. Samuel did it. Samuel hacked Agag into pieces. He did what Saul would not do. So, uh, Remember, Samuel was old just a couple of chapters ago. He's not stopping, though. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, here's, this is important, Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Like, even though... Samuel didn't see him anymore, and Samuel claimed all of these things. He still had a soft heart of compassion for him. 
So as dumb as Saul was, as prideful and as arrogant as Saul was, Samuel still had a soft heart of prayer for Saul. I think that's an important lesson, even after all of this. Now, obviously, the most important thing is how prideful we stand before God, right? Are we willing to be patient and listen and wait on him? Are we willing to act and let him work with us rather than having, having to have him move before we decide to move forward? Are we willing to submit to his will and do whatever that means? Are we willing to be humble before him rather than exalt ourselves? Because those are all of the things that Saul did wrong. But of what Samuel did right, he was willing to call out Saul's sin. He was willing to tell Saul when he was wrong. He was willing to tell the people when they were wrong. But even after all of that, he still wished they would just follow God. So that's what we can take away from this. Even when people are stubborn and mean and hateful towards us, Jesus told us to love our enemies. He said, you, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. That's what Samuel did. And that's what we can learn from this. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for tonight. Uh, I'm sorry we didn't get as far as we were expecting, but God, thank you for showing us Saul's failure in Samuel's heart that grieved that failure. As we live in a world that is covered in darkness, is rejecting you, rejecting the authority of your word, that has turned their hearts from you, help us to not stop standing in the gap as a light, showing the world what it means to follow you. And even when they hate us, to have a soft heart of compassion for them and to love them and keep praying for them and wishing that they would follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.